Hello everyone, and welcome back to another Tiger Project podcast episode. Today, we have a very special episode brought to you by Mr. Yonke's 2022 Math of Sustainability class. Today's episode will feature three students, Julie Karen, Evie Offit, and Chloe Lynn, who will present their final project for that class. Focusing on our energy consumption, these outstanding students deliver their findings on a more sustainable energy alternative. To start us off is Chloe Lynn. Hi, my name is Chloe Litt, and this is my Solar Power podcast. First, I will give an overview of solar power and then go into detail about the renewable energy source from a mathematical lens. I have the pleasure to interview my environmental science and sustainability diploma teacher, Dr. Barrett. Dr. Barrett has had personal experience with solar energy and is very passionate about climate action. Finally, I will propose a recommendation for action in influencing individuals and communities to go solar. Solar power is energy from the sun that is converted into thermal or electrical energy. When the sun shines on a solar panel, energy from the sunlight is absorbed by the PV cells in the panel. This energy creates electrical charges that move in response to internal electrical field in the cell, causing electricity to flow. Solar energy is the cleanest and most abundant renewable energy source available, and the U.S. has some of the richest solar resources in the world. Solar technologies can harness this energy for various uses, including generating electricity, providing light or a comfortable interior environment, and heating water for domestic, commercial, and industrial use. The output of energy is produced by solar panels depends on various factors. The crucial factors being the size, capacity, and efficiency of the panels. As for the size, the typical residential solar panel dimensions are 65 inches by 39 inches, each panel weighing about 42 pounds. The dimensions of solar commercial panels are larger. 6.5 feet long, weighing 50 pounds or more for each panel. Therefore, if you install a 6 kilowatt hour system with 20 average sized panels, your system will likely measure approximately 27 feet wide by 13 feet long, which is 352 square feet in all. Generally, every square foot of roof space has the potential to generate about 15 watts of solar energy. Solar power systems are usually able to process 15% to 22% of solar energy into usable energy. The size of solar panels has been relatively the same for years, but the efficiency has gotten much better, growing by approximately 10% from 1995 to 2020. The capacity for commercial solar systems tends to be higher, enabling it to produce more power than residential solar systems. The Earth gets 174 petawatts of solar radiation, which is equivalent to one quadrillion watts. From that, the residential solar setup produces anywhere from 350 to 850 kilowatt hours per month. At the same time, the average American home uses about 900 kilowatt hours per month. As a result, Americans are saving upwards of 90% on monthly electrical bills. 
Not to mention, solar panels come with a 25 to 30 year warranty. The average cost for installing solar panels for a 2,000 square foot home is between 1,500 and 400. The costs are determined by how much electricity is used each day. Though these prices might seem high, the Federal Investment Tax Credit, or the ITC, gives back 26% of what you paid for solar panels on your taxes. Depending on where you live, solar panel payback time averages between 5 and 15 years in the United States. Solar energy has become very popular and is the fastest growing energy source since 2008. Installations of solar power have grown 35-fold to an estimated 62.5 gigawatts today. This is enough capacity to power the equivalent of 12 million average American homes. In 2020, there were 12 million jobs in renewable energy and supply chains, a third of them in solar power. That rose from 11.5 million jobs in 2019. Some of these jobs include research and development, manufacturing of solar power materials, construction of solar power plants, operation of solar power plants, and solar power installation and maintenance. In the United States, there are more than 242,000 solar workers. Okay, enough about the insane facts about how amazing solar power is. Now it's time to hear a personal experience with solar panels from Dr. Barrett. Good morning, Dr. V. Thank you for sitting with me for this interview about solar energy. Oh, good morning, Chloe. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So my first question is, what are the incentives for people to invest in solar power? Well, the federal government actually has a, a rebate program so that um, you can actually claim 26% of the cost of the solar panels as a tax reduction. Wow, so, yeah. that's so interesting. Yeah. Have you had any personal experiences with that? Yes, I have. So I bought a home last June and I was very excited. Um, when I was looking for my home, I chose one that I thought had really good uh, solar potential. And then I, um, I clicked on a few Facebook posts actually because I was interested in solar and I was in Home Depot and there was people selling solar panels and I actually interviewed about four different companies and I found the one that I thought was seemed the most reliable and wanted to give me the gave me the best answers to the questions and so I had solar panels installed on my home and the process took about six months um, and then the, the panels are financed over 20 years actually okay. um, and so I was, it was about $25,000, but I was able to claim $8,000 as a tax reduction on my taxes for, for 2021. Wow. Um, the panels finally went online. So first they had to install them. Then they installed like the solar system so that the power was going into the electricity in my house. And then Eversource, who's the electricity provider for this area, they had to come and install a different meter that runs in two directions. So that like when I use electricity, it spins forward, but then when my panels are producing electricity, it spins backwards. So in the end, I am paying $15, which is basically nothing for my electricity. 
Um, wow. That's like the minimum payment towards Eversource to even have an account with them. That's amazing. And then I pay $85 to a company called Mosaic, which is the company that financed my panels. Um, so altogether, I'm paying about $100 a month for electricity. But my electric bill prior to that was $150 a month. So, so you're saving $50 a month. I think so, yes. Yes, yeah. at least in the short term. So yeah. we don't know what's going to be the long term. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And then do you know anything about the GCDS solar panels? Yeah, so GCDS also has installed. You know, we, we're trying to be that this new building um, is as sustainable as we were able to do that, you know, balancing out finances. So we have solar panels on the on all the flat roofs of the building and every roof eventually will have solar panels. Um, there's also been a lot of retrofitting of the OCR campus and they're generating a lot of electrical, electrical energy um, through solar panels down there also. That's so amazing. Do you have any estimate of how much energy is actually wasted? Because if you're not using that energy, where is that going? So, yeah. So what happens to the energy that we don't use? It goes back into the grid. So it goes to Eversource, who is the provider. And then other people who don't have panels, they're paying for electricity. And actually that is coming from the people like me who have the panels. Oh. And coming from GCDS. So... On the weekends when we don't use very much electricity, um, our, the, ener the electricity is going out to everybody else. And at night when we don't use electricity here, um, that stored energy that's gone back into the grid is, can be used by other people. And is, there, are, is the government paying you for that since you're giving energy to other so, people? So it's not the government. It's, yeah. the, it's Eversource, Eversource. Who, is the, who is the electrical company. Mm -hmm. And so what I've been told, I haven't experienced this yet, but what I've been told is every March they reconcile how much energy you have put into the grid versus how much you've taken out. And they're gonna, they'll pay me a lump sum every March for the electricity that I have given to the grid. Wow, that's amazing. It is, yeah. I'm excited. I'm, yeah. and, and you know, one of the other things I'm excited about, Chloe, is that I live on a street where nobody else has solar panels. And I'm really hoping to be, um, you know, a model for my neighbors. So several people have come by already and asked me questions about the panels. Um, and that makes me really excited that other people are considering it. So if you have trees, a lot of trees shading the roof of your house, you, you can't use panels. If you have a lot of gables, you know, it's very hard to install the panels. So yeah. what you really need is a big flat roof that faces either due south is the best. Um, I have a a big flat west facing roof so those panels are getting sunlight you know this time of the year about 14 hours wow that's amazing yeah. so i actually did some research and i know that usually solar panels on um homes generate about 850 kilowatts per hour do you know how much your panels generate you know i don't and of course that depends on the size of the panels and how many mm -hmm. you have yes exactly so like the size so my roof has eight panels so mm -hmm. it's got like two panels on the garage part of the roof and then six panels on the other part of the roof. Um, the nice thing though, when you think about it is the bigger your house is, the bigger your roof is. Yeah. And so generally the bigger your house is, the more electricity you use. So if you have a nice big flat roof, you can generally produce enough electricity for the use of your house. Oh, okay. The, of course, the big user of electricity is air conditioning in the summer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, because home heating is not generally done using electricity because it is not very, it's quite expensive. Yeah. Um, so it, 
what I'll really see it is in the summertime. I don't use a lot of electricity because I don't use a lot of air conditioning in my home, but most people, that's their major use. You know, some my neighbors had the air conditioners going yesterday. Oh. Goodness knows why. It was oh my gosh, only 70 it was degrees. weather out yesterday. I know. People just don't open the windows. Yeah. They just click on that AC. But, you know, again, hopefully I'm being a model for the neighborhood. And, yes, I hope so too. And we can all start kind of just being really thoughtful about the decisions that we make about yep. our home heating and cooling. Yep, I agree. Thank you so much, Dr. V. Thank you for asking, Chloe. You heard it best from Dr. Barrett that going solar is crucial for the health of our planet. Although people in the fossil fuel industry will possibly lose their jobs in the U.S. if the U.S. transitions to solar energy, the overall outcome will far outweigh the negative effects. Moreover, jobs in the solar industry are on the rise, as demonstrated by the 5% increase from 2019 to 2020. The stakeholders in the solar industry consist of project developers, installation companies, component manufacturers, and other trade laborers such as electricians, HVAC installers, and roofers. These companies can either be locally based or interested in expanding their business within the community. I propose that many private energy companies such as Eversource Energy start incentivizing customers to get solar panels by giving them compensation. This will also encourage investors, board members, employees, etc. to support the energy companies and their new energy projects as described in the Chris Hayes podcast, The Future of Energy, which I highly recommend you listen to. CEOs have major climate plans right now, making them even more interested in putting real money into good renewable energy solar projects. I hope that this podcast influences people to get solar panels, invest in solar companies, and start saving our planet. Thank you for that really amazing insight on solar panels. That was Chloe Litt. Next, we will be hearing from Jolie Karen and Evie Offit. Hello, and welcome to our podcast episode about High-Speed Rail Transportation by Jolie and Evie. In this episode, we will be explaining how high-speed rail lines work and the history and current state of high-speed rail lines in different countries, and finally analyzing the sustainable form of energy and its benefits. High-speed rail, as it sounds, is a rail line that travels at significantly larger speeds than regular trains that use an integrated system of specialized rolling stock and dedicated tracks. High-speed rail, or HSR, means the train usually has the high speed of 250 kilometers per hour, which is the same as 160 miles per hour. Any train below 120 miles per hour is not really considered to be a high-speed rail, but keep in mind there is no international standard to what makes a train a high-speed rail. High-speed rail is desirable in many countries for its efficiency and sustainability. The first country to start high-speed rail was Japan, when they implemented their first line in 1964, called the Shinkansen, or bullet train. Today, it has increased to nine lines that reach 22 major cities with over 3,014 kilometers, or 1,890 miles, which is the same distance from Miami, Florida to Winterville, Maine, on high-speed rail lines. Since there are no international regulations or speed limits of high-speed rail lines, Japan's trains travel up to 320 kilometers per hour or 200 miles per hour at maximum speed. 
Japan holds the busiest high-speed rail service in the world with over 420,000 passengers riding on an average weekday. Japan says that in over 50 years of its operating, there have been no fatalities or injuries from high-speed rail accidents. Another major place with developed high-speed rail lines is Europe. Europe's high-speed rail is unique because of the fact that it crosses several countries' borders. There are rail lines that go from Italy into France and end in Spain. France created their high-speed rail system in 1981 with a train that ran between Paris and Lyon. The train had a top speed of 124 miles per hour, which may not seem impressive now, but at the time it was. Now, France has over 2,800 kilometers of high-speed rail, and their trains can go as fast as 200 miles per hour. This system is called the LGV. The Eurostar service connects all of Europe through one system. A passenger could get from Paris to London in 2 hours and 17 minutes and from Paris to Berlin in 11 hours. Speaking of Germany, they created their high-speed rail system in 1991. Because France built their system before Germany, Germany's trains are very similar to France when it comes to speed and efficiency. China's high-speed rail lines over the past 15 years have developed rapidly from funding to the government. In 2020, $300 billion were donated for high-speed rails. The Chinese high-speed rail system was planned in the 1990s based on Japan's successful system. The rail line started operating in 2008 with speeds from 250 to 350 kilometers per hour, or 217 miles per hour, reaching 75% of China's cities. Since they are developing so fast, China is expected to reach over 38,000 kilometers or 23,600 miles by 2025 and 45,000 kilometers or 27,900 miles long term. This is more distance of high-speed rail than the rest of the world's high-speed rail lines combined. It is so successful in China for many reasons being that there is so much land to cover in China, the population is extremely large, and that the high-speed rail lines connects remote towns to big cities. One note about the Chinese high-speed rail line was in 2011, there was a crash. Two high-speed trains crashed, killing 40. Since, there haven't been any accidents. Another thing to note is that almost 3,700 people die globally due to crashes, which goes to show that high-speed rail lines really have proven themselves to be safer options. The United States is behind when it comes to implementing high-speed rail into the country. Compared to other countries, the U.S.'s cities have very low population densities, so if a high-speed rail would run through it, it would not be very popular. That being said, California started construction for its own high-speed rail system. With the system in place, a passenger could get from San Francisco to L.A. in 3 hours and 10 minutes, including wait time for a train. In contrast, taking a plane would take 5 hours and 20 minutes, including driving to the airport, security, and the actual plane ride. The United States High-Speed Rail website does have a plan with four phases that would create over 17,000 miles of rail. Where and when did you take the high-speed rail? So I've been on high-speed high rails several times in Japan, Taiwan, and actually in Uzbekistan. So, um, but those countries, even Uzbekistan, are considerably smaller than the U.S. So, for example, Japan is the size of California. Taiwan is about the size of Maryland. How was your experience? Like, how many people did you see? Did you feel, like, comfortable or nervous? And also, mm -hmm. what was the length of the ride? So the rides were never longer than, say, three hours. Um, totally. I mean, the trains are beautiful. They look like bullets, and they're super comfortable. Um, I wasn't nervous at all. 
Jimmy. Um, they tend to be pretty, especially in Japan, um, pretty well traveled. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people are on them, even in Uzbekistan too. Um, you know, it's uh, more expensive, so it tends to be business travelers or you know people who clearly are a little bit more wealthy. So based off your experience, do you think we should start implementing high-speed rails in the United States? So it's an interesting question, <laughs> which I thought about last night. And the issue, so the issue in the United States is it's a big country, right? Mm -hmm. So Japan is the size of California, which means that high-speed rail and the, the country, Japan, has heavily pop, heavily populated centers. Like there are cities yes. yeah. where tons of people live. Very dense. And, and the same with Taiwan. So it makes it those kinds of rails where you're going to city to city, it makes a lot of sense. And even in Uzbekistan, their population centers, even though it's a big country, their population centers are concentrated. So I think it's tricky in the US for that reason. And, um, you know, I think you could probably do more with trains in the Northeast corridor maybe in California. Um, the other issue is that when you arrive at destinations, a lot of times you also need a car. Like I would yeah. take a high-speed train to Boston where I have a lot of family, but then I would need my car. Yeah. So it's a, it's a tricky situation. But that's the same as a plane, don't you think? You're right, you're right, or just driving. That's yeah, what I was yeah, thinking. Yeah. So if I, rather than take a train to, to Boston or DC, I probably would drive, right? I wouldn't take a, a plane anymore. The other issue is that, like you were talking about Florida, and Florida, um, you can fly to Florida. I mean, depending on the time, you probably can get a ticket for like 200 bucks, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe 400, you know, during a, um, a more you know, busier time. So on those times, again, it's, I don't know if the, you could charge that little for a high-speed train given the infrastructure that you yeah. need for it. You know, I think rail can be, I think that there's uses for rail, for example, getting it, making it much easier for people to get to airports where, um, that is more effective. But I, again, I think it's hard. Like, I don't think I would take a train to Florida. I mean, it's still, that's probably about 1500 miles roughly. Yeah. So that would be, I would probably fly. So you, you would fly. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I am a very, um, if there's a way to do things in a more environmentally um, effective way, I'm we're I'm all for it. But you know, in terms of the cost benefit, I yeah. wouldn't spend five hundred dollars on a train if I can spend two hundred dollars on a plane. From an energy efficiency lens, did you know that taking a high speed rail is nine times more energy efficient than flying? Absolutely. Flying is horrible for the environment. <laughs> yeah. No, flying is really, I mean, there's nothing. Yeah. I completely understand that. But then you have to think about the 
that's absolutely right. But if you can fly to Florida for two or three, three hours, right? Versus, uh, I don't know how long a, that train ride would be. Yeah, can you so we, um, this isn't exactly accurate because obviously it was not a train. Um, but we said if you took like a regular train ride from Greenwich to New Haven, because yep. out of New Haven would be a high-speed train to Miami, it would take, um, your total trip would be seven and a half hours. If you took a train to New Haven and then flew from New Haven to Florida, your trip would be around four and a half hours long. So the plane ride from New Haven, um, because the plane ride from New Haven is three hours long. So a plane is around three hours faster, but high-speed rail is still more efficient. It is. Like energy wise. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's totally more efficient. It's also, if you're flying from city to city, it's great because you don't have to go to the airport. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a lot more um, efficient. I just, um, for me personally, I'm going to do the thing that's the most cost effective mm -hmm. and, you know, spend my energy dollars in different ways. If yeah. that makes sense. Like the car I drive, the way, you know, we manage our home. Yeah, yeah. So... In the long term, high-speed rail proves to be a successful investment. Its competing technologies, magnetic levitation, also known as maglev trains or hyperloop trains, are similar yet different to high-speed rail lines. Having to choose between the maglev and hyperloop, all forms would need constructions of new rail lines, which is costly. Also, these types of rail lines have more health-slash-safety risks than high-speed rails do. High-speed rails is the more conventional technology and deemed to be more matured with a much lower risk investment. The maglev trains in China travel up to 430 kilometers per hour or 270 miles per hour, covering 30 kilometers or 19 miles in seven minutes. China, Japan, and South Korea are the only countries currently using maglev trains. On the other hand, hyperloop trains aren't even built yet. They are still a theoretical idea to propel trains through sealed tubes with little air resistance. Due to all of this, high-speed trains seem to be the most promising option. Not only that, but they are extremely beneficial and effective in moving people and goods. All countries that have high-speed rail do it for, quote, the high-capacity, sustainable mobility it delivers, first and foremost with economic development and better safety as beneficial side effects. Addition of high-speed rail would also save an enormous amount of energy. Implementing high-speed rail lines would reduce the amount of cars on the road significantly, which also goes to reduce the demand for oil. In statistical values from the International Union of Railways, high-speed rail is four times as energy efficient as driving cars and nine times more efficient than flying. High-speed rail for the United States is a very expensive investment. Not only do you have to think about dedicating money to the production of the train, you must also think about the infrastructure and maintenance, something that the U.S. does not do well. Right now, the Antrax Northeast Corridor is already backlogged in $200 billion over maintenance. To buy, build, and maintain a high-speed rail system in the U.S. would cost more than a fortune. California's high-speed rail is 520 miles, costing about $100 billion. Following these numbers, if the U.S. were to build a nationwide high-speed rail system, it would cost around $3.3 trillion. Despite these economic setbacks, high-speed rail will be a monumental push towards a more environmentally conscious world. High-speed rail, if introduced to the U.S., would be the most sustainable form of transportation. It would release 4 kilograms of carbon dioxide per 100 passenger kilometers, whereas cars and planes release 14 and 17, respectively. 
Also, the trains would be powered by clean electricity and not oil. One train powered by wind can carry more people than nine airplanes. Transportation contributes to 30% of the United States greenhouse gas emissions, meaning that high-speed rail could be the, quote, single largest climate solution that can decarbonize the majority of our transport transportation network quickly, end quote, according to the U.S. High-Speed Rail website. Although it will be difficult to put into place, we believe that high-speed rail lines are a great investment to implement in the United States. We recommend beginning this process as it will take years to get it successfully up and running. In the long term, we are a changing society and this energy-efficient form of transportation is expensive yet crucial to our sustainable future. Thank you everyone for listening to our podcast. And especially thank you to Chloe Litt, Julie Karen, and Evie Offit for being here with us today. That's it for today's podcast episode, and I really hope you guys enjoy. See you next time. Bye.